open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 4. I think if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 628. It is indeed. That's good. In this chapter we're going to look at today, this morning, the father addresses the son three times. Remember, that's the literary device that structures these first nine chapters, a father speaking to his son. Verse 1, verse 10, verse 20, hear my son, hear my son, my son, pay attention. These addresses in this chapter successively develop, each building on the last. So in the first address, the first uh, nine verses, the father passes on to his son what he learned from his own father. But then in the second section, receiving the family wisdom is not enough. The son needs to walk in it. And the father offers to lead him. And then in the third address, the father calls the son to become the right sort of person who can faithfully walk the way of wisdom. So the father concludes with what we might call an anatomy of wisdom. Let's listen in then to this father-son chat in Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, and do not, for, do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland, and she will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is God's word. In this chapter, there's really three main lessons that the father teaches the son. The first is get wisdom and pass it on. 
The second, walk wisdom's way. And the third, take wisdom to heart. First, in verses 1 through 9, we're taught, get wisdom and pass it on. Get wisdom and pass it on. In the opening verses, the father calls his son to listen attentively to his instruction in order to gain insight. But instead of beginning with his own lessons, the father says, this is what my father taught me when I was young. So do you see we have represented here three generations. The grandfather taught it to the father, and now the father teaches it to the son. It's this intergenerational passing on of wisdom. And you can actually hear the tone change a little bit in verses 4 through 9. Grandpa has a slightly different approach to teaching wisdom. You hear it, he just says, get wisdom, do it, get wisdom. What are you complaining about? Get wisdom. In these opening four verses, we're already seeing something important, and I want to just pause here for a moment about the way biblical wisdom is taught and sought. If you want godly wisdom, don't go to celebrities or pop psychologists on Oprah Winfrey or self-help gurus on daytime talk shows. Where do you go for wisdom? Well, it's simply and rather humbly passed on in the home from generation to generation. Derek Kidner puts it this way, uh, the love of the best things is transmitted by personal influence along channels of affection. We learn what to love when we are influenced by someone else who is affectionate towards us. This isn't unique to Proverbs, but is in fact central to the way God works in human history. So in Genesis 18, God says, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Part of God's purpose in choosing Abraham and electing Abraham is so that Abraham can train the next generation how to keep the way of the Lord. Well, there's two sides to this relationship, a bit like a game of catch, and you might find yourself in one or the other side or possibly in both. As children, we have a responsibility to get wisdom from our parents and other elders in the church. Children, you have a responsibility to attend to your parents' wisdom. Kids, youth, even by bringing you here this morning, your parents are trying to pass godly wisdom onto you. And you have a responsibility to try and catch what they're passing on to you. And as we become adults, we have an obligation to this wisdom tradition that we have been given. G.K. Chesterton says that tradition is the dem democracy of the dead. That is to say, when we attend to the wisdom of the elders, the tradition of the past, we're letting previous generations get a vote on how we do things. That's not to say at times we vote against that, but at least they have a say. If we ignore the wisdom tradition, we're assuming that our generation in this moment knows everything there is to know, and past generations with all their experience simply have nothing to offer us. Uh, if I can go off, uh, uh, off my notes for a moment and someone throw something at me if I go too far astray, it just strikes me that in American culture the last 50 years, uh, beginning in the 1960s, it's, uh, what is the who saying? I hope I die before I get old. The older generation has nothing to offer. And that's been the attitude for the last 50 years. Especially in the 60s, it seems so striking that parents who grew up in the Great Depression, fought in World War II, have no wisdom whatsoever to offer from all those life experiences. I mean, sure, every generation has their own shortcomings, but if that's our attitude, the past has nothing to teach us. Surely that is foolishness. What if you have unwise parents? Some of us do. 
Some of us have parents who might even be encouraging us to live in ways that are contrary to God's own commands. Well, in ancient Israel, the family was broader than just the parents and children's. So did you see Abraham is called to teach his children and his whole household, servants, nephews, nieces, whatever, to teach them the way of wisdom, the way of the Lord. And in the New Testament, Christians are called members of the household of God. And so in a sense, this whole congregation is meant to be like a family. So if you have parents who have not advised you well, maybe you're even an adult and saying, I wish I was brought up in the way of wisdom, look out for an older mentor or a grandparent or parent that you can adopt. On the other side, parents, adults, we have an obligation to pass on the wisdom we have received. Wise parents break bad cycles and pass on good ones. Wise parents sift their upbringing, what they've received, and pass on wisdom to their children. If your parents faithfully brought you up to know God and to live in his ways, then you too have an obligation to pass that on to the next generation. Don't be the generation that breaks the chain of faith, of wisdom, from generation to generation. Maybe you don't have kids, or your kids are grown. There is still great need here within the household of God for godparents who can pass wisdom on to the younger generation. The Apostle Paul didn't have children, but he writes to the Thessalonians, I was among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. Okay, if, that, if you're in that, that situation, you don't have children of your own, this is what uh, Paul himself was in the same situation. And yet he said to the church, I'm like a nursing mother to you. Okay, so wisdom is intergenerational. Get wisdom. But then what's the grandfather's teaching that's getting passed on? Well, it's the same thing. Get wisdom. Uh, in verses 5 and 7, it's a bit like an investment strategy. In some families, it's, it's instilled from a young age. Buy land when it comes available. After all, land only goes up in value. In other families, education is a high value. And so the emphasis is on good grades to get into a good college. Other families stress the importance of working from an early age and saving money. Okay, what is this family's uh, culture that's getting passed on? What's this grandfather's investment strategy? Get wisdom. Or it could be buy wisdom. It's repeated four times in verses 5 and 7. Buy wisdom. Buy insight. Buy wisdom. Buy insight. Remember, we've been saying wisdom is skill to navigate life's complexity. Wisdom is taking all we know about God and applying it to all of our life. Wisdom is knowing God and living rightly in light of that relationship. And so that kind of wisdom is valuable above all else. And so the father says at the end of verse 7, um, I think ESV says, whatever you get, get insight. It could also be saying, if it costs you all that you've gotten, everything you own, get insight. How do we get this kind of wisdom? Well, verse 4, the Father says, Let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. This is the secret of life. Verse 7 is a bit of a paradox. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Well, if you don't have it, how do you get it? Uh, Derek Kidner paraphrases the point this way. This is kind of what it's getting at. The father or grandfather, rather, is saying, what it takes is not brains or opportunity, but decision. Do you want wisdom? Come and get it. Here it is. It's on offer. 
But the grandfather warns that the school of wisdom is costly. It may cost everything you have. And it doesn't get any cheaper in the New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then reburied. And in his joy, he went and sold everything he had so he could buy the field and get that treasure. Okay, verses 5 and 7 talk about getting wisdom like an investment strategy. In verse 6 and then verses 8 and 9, the grandfather shifts to dating advice. He tells his son not only to buy wisdom, but to cherish wisdom. Verse 6, if you're faithful to wisdom like a wife and do not forsake her, she will keep you. If you love wisdom like a bride, she will guard you. The son must participate in the process. The father can tell him how important it is to get wisdom, but the son himself must love wisdom. Likewise, verse 8, prize wisdom highly, or, or we could translate it, cherish wisdom. Value her and she will exalt you. And then the second part of verse 8, embrace wisdom. The grandfather uses a daring image here, which, the, uh, which our English kind of tones down a bit. Perhaps we could say snuggle wisdom, cuddle with wisdom. Okay, he's saying grab hold of wisdom. This is the woman for you. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, he's not teaching wisdom, but adoring it. Like a bride, wisdom is a blessing to the one who loves her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. The one who has wisdom will have a sort of poise and grace. Might we say a godly elegance that even hardship and suffering can't strip away. Okay, get wisdom and pass it on. But an inheritance alone doesn't make one wise. We're probably all aware of people who have inherited a lot of money and used it foolishly. Likewise, receiving the family wisdom isn't enough. So verses 10 through 19 teach us we must walk wisdom's way. Walk wisdom's way. I have to confess, I uh, came up with that point subconsciously after listening to Aerosmith, and now it's stuck in my head. I'm put, putting it together how, anyways, how that all connected. So uh, sorry if that's stuck in your head now. Maybe I should have kept that to myself. But uh, <laughs> Walk wisdom's way. The verses set out two ways here, 10 through 19, uh, that we might go. What verse 11 calls the way of wisdom and what verse 14 calls the paths of the wicked. There's this two-way of image is a simplified teaching device. You might say, isn't there more than two ways to go in life? Well, you know in math when you're doing algebra and you simplify an expression, it's got all these exponents and variables and all kinds of stuff, and you simplify it down and restate it in the simplest form. In, a, in the same sort of way, in the Bible wisdom literature, all the complex ways you might go in life are simplified down to two basic ways. Two basic ways, which makes the comparison easier. And we find this teaching device used throughout the Bible. So Psalm 1, that was our call to worship last week, contrasts between two ways and concludes, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Likewise, Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, tells his disciples, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And then he says there's two kinds of trees, one that bears good fruit, one that bears bad fruit. There's two kinds of builders, a wise builder with a good foundation and the foolish builder who builds on sand. Psalm 1, Matthew 7, Proverbs 4, they all draw similar contrasts between these two basic ways. 
The two ways produce different fruit in one's life, different character. And the two ways have different trajectories. They ultimately lead to different destinations. In verses 10 through 13, the father commends the way of wisdom. The way begins in verse 10 by hearing and receiving the father's words, for he teaches wisdom. You don't wind up on the way of wisdom by accident or by chance. It's catechism, training in the home and in the church that leads to the way of wisdom. The father says in verse 11, he leads on paths of uprightness. It's a play on words because it can be a, a smooth path that you can walk on, but it also means a morally upright path. In fact, verse 12 says it's such a smooth path that you can move quickly on it. You can make a good pace. In fact, even if you run, you will not stumble. The promise that hits home because I tripped on my run yesterday and now my knees bruised. So I'm, I'm, a path that you can run on and not stumble sounds good. Well, the Father can teach the way of wisdom. He can praise the way of wisdom. He can even lead you along the way of wisdom. But ultimately, you need to walk wisdom's way. No one can do it for you. You've got to walk the way. And so verse 13 says you need grit, tenacity, determination to keep walking wisdom's way no matter how hard it gets. I love watching uh, racing, uh, run, running racing, foot racing. Uh, I love watching our chapel students run in high school at uh, uh, cross country and track season. The Olympics last year, uh, Eliud Kipchoge had a beautiful finish. He looked great the whole race. He finished 90 seconds ahead of the next runner. But what brings tears to my eyes is a finish like the 2021 College Cross Country National Championship. You can find the video on YouTube this afternoon if you want to. University of Oregon senior Cooper Tier uh, is in the final 50 meters of the six-mile race. He's coming in, the finish line is in sight, and his legs totally collapse. And it's painful to watch. He keeps getting up and falling over and falling over and ends up crawling across the finish line, taking uh, another minute and a half for that last 50 meters. It, and actually, I, I, I couldn't find the video I was thinking of, and so I was Googling it. And apparently, this happens quite frequently in marathons, that runners have to crawl across the finish line. In 2018, Eliud Kabut was in second place, uh, uh, an elite Kenyan runner, when his legs collapsed yards from the finish line. He crawled across. He didn't make the podium, but he, after years of training and 26 miles of racing, he was going to finish no matter what, whatever it takes. That's the kind of grit and determination the father urges on his son. Hold on to training. Hold on to discipline. Like an athlete or a musician, keep training. Keep being disciplined. Keep to the program. Don't let go no matter how hard it gets. Don't give up. Guard wisdom. Hang on to her. For she is your life. So cling to her. You might have noticed that this keeps getting repeated. Verse 4, keep my commandments and live. Here, verse 13, she is your life, and we'll see it again in the last section. We live by wisdom. You've got to walk wisdom's way yourself. Then verse 14 and 17, or through 17, the father warns about what he calls the path of the wicked. It doesn't sound like a very promising trail, does it? If you saw that sign in the National Forest, you probably wouldn't walk the path of the wicked. 
Well, the father is saying it should be as obvious to you as that. Don't take this path. In fact, verses 14 through 15, he gives us six warnings. Don't enter the path of the wicked. Don't stride on the way of evil. Avoid it. Don't go on it. Turn away. Pass on a different route. That middle one, avoid it, is literally flaunt it, scoff at it. As Bruce Walkie puts it, we're called to rebel against the structures and constraints that masquerade as what is true and right. The paths of the wicked claim to be the right path, but we must rebel against them. How can the Father make this any more clear? Do you remember from last week, Proverbs teaches that wickedness is advantaging yourself to the disadvantage of others. And so the path of the wicked might look like a good way to get ahead. It's putting yourself first. Isn't this common sense in our day? Look out for number one. But the Father says, avoid it at all costs. Rebel against that way of living. Why? Well, verses 16 to 17, the Father says these people are evil-holics. They're addicted to doing evil. 16 says they're so addicted to their evil ways they can't even sleep without it. And it is interesting how many of the things that start off promising freedom in our day and age end up as life-controlling addictions. Don't even start on the path. Verse 17 says, They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. We think surely this is an exaggeration. But I, I learned just this week that um, uh, Warren Buffett is one of the top owners of land that mobile homes sit on. The poorest people in America, and yet rates can be raised, and that's how one of the richest people in America is rich. Okay, what is that if not eating the bread of wickedness, of putting yourself ahead? He's incidentally not buying these lands as a public good to the people that live on them. It's an investment strategy. Verses 18 and 19, the father contrasts the two ways then. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. At dawn, when the sun rose this morning, it starts to get light, and then it gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And that's what the path of righteousness is like. It keeps getting brighter. By contrast, the way of the wicked is like deep, uncanny darkness. There's no moral light, either from a, uh, our conscience or from revelation in God's word, if you've rejected those. And when you put it that way, do you want to walk down the dark path where you trip and stumble, or the bright path of the dawning sun, which one do you want? The choice seems obvious once you simplify it down. But the lesson doesn't stop there. We get wisdom from our elders. We have to walk the way of wisdom ourselves. And then verses 20 through 27 teach us that we need to learn. Uh, in order to walk wisdom's way, we've got to take wisdom to heart. And that's the third lesson I want you to catch this morning. Take wisdom to heart. These verses are sort of like a sports physical. If you're going to set out on the way of wisdom, you've got to do this physical first. Take stock of where you're at. We've got to be prepared. We might call it an anatomy of discipleship. Do you see these verses each reference different body parts? They assume that every part of the body can be either an instrument of faithfulness or of destruction. Verses 20 through 22, the first part, focus on being careful about what shapes and influences our inner life. And then verses 24 through 27 focus on our outer life, how that comes out. And right in the middle in verse 23, sort of like a hinge between the inner life and the outer life, focuses on the heart. 
First, we need to be careful about what shapes our inner life. This is what verses 20 through 22 teach us. Do you see this progression from ears in verse 20 to sight or eyes in verse 21 to the heart and all flesh in verse 22? What we listen to and look at shapes who we become. It shapes our heart and our inner lives. This is such an important area where we need Christian wisdom. At times, as Christians, we've very narrowly focused on questions like, does this movie have nudity? Does this song use swear words? What's it rated? And those are the sorts of questions, those are appropriate questions to ask. I'm not dismissing those, but we can't simply stop there. We need to recognize that everything in our world is shaping us, is discipling us in some way or another. It's teaching us what to value. And so we need to be careful about what we give our attention and our time to. Things like social media or sports may not have anything overtly objectionable, but they do shape us over time. They condition us. And so what Proverbs is telling us here is that we need to have a healthy diet to have healthy inner lives. We need to be careful about what our ears are inclined to, what our eyes are looking at. But the Father doesn't focus on what to avoid here in these verses, but he positively is saying, here, here's what you should focus on. Here's what you need to take in. Give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we saw in Proverbs 2 and 3 that the Father's words are not merely human wisdom, but as Proverbs 2 says, through these words, God is giving wisdom. That is to say, in the mystery of revelation and inspiration, the human words of the Father in Proverbs are God's word to us. And so what do we need to do? We need to give our attention to God's word. We need to incline our ears to God's word. We need to keep them in our sight, keep them in our heart. Uh, at the one hand, it's easier to be distracted today than ever before, but on the other hand, that same technology can make things easier than ever before to hear God's word. If you use the ESV app, and I'm not trying to plug a specific app, but that one's nice that Kristen Getty, who we sing a lot of Getty hymns, reads the entire Bible in a delightful Irish accent, because she's Irish. Uh, it's not acting, but it's uh, <laughs> her natural accent. Or if you prefer, on Bible Gateway, you can listen to David Suchet dramatically read the entire Bible. You can listen to God's word while you commute, while you exercise, while you drive tractor, whatever you're doing. It's easier than ever before to listen to God's word. In verse 23, then we come to the heart of the matter. We must take wisdom to heart. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is really the theological core of the lesson in this chapter. To get wisdom and pass it on, to walk wisdom's way, we need heart transformation, heart surgery. We saw in the assurance of pardon uh, that we read earlier this morning that Ezekiel makes the same point in slightly different language. We need God to sprinkle clean water on us, to clean us from our uncleanness and idolatry, to give us a new heart of flesh and his own spirit within us. Jeremiah promises the same thing. I'll put my law within them. 
or God speaking through Jeremiah, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Just as our physical heart is located in the center of our body and pumps life-flowing blood to all of our limbs, in the Bible, the heart symbolically is the center of the person. It's the seat of our mind and our affections and our will. So when it's saying, keep your heart, it's saying, keep your inner life, protect it. And so in John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he's really saying the same thing in a slightly different image. He says you need a new birth, a new life, a spirit birth, the renewal of our inner lives from the inside out. And so the heart of Proverbs 4 here, that we must keep our hearts with vigilance, makes the same point that was at the center of Proverbs 3 last week. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. The same truth keeps getting expressed in different ways. We need to take wisdom to heart. Our inner lives need to be shaped by knowing God, by trusting Him. The New Testament makes the same point. We need to come to right standing before God through our faith or our trust in Jesus Christ. If Proverbs seems a little bit repetitive, it keeps coming back to this. Remember, it's father-son discussions. And if you listen to parents, maybe even after church, it's going to be repetitive listen, uh, lessons that the parents keep saying over and over again. And that's what we need is this repetition to shape us. As verse 23 says, from a renewed heart that's shaped by God's word and that trusts in the Lord, flow the springs of life. Renewed life comes from a renewed heart. This instruction to keep or guard the heart with all vigilance is intentionally ambiguous. The same word for keeping or guarding can either mean we need to protect or guard our hearts from external assault, which is true. We need to guard the influences coming into it. But it can also mean we need to guard or restrain our hearts like a prisoner, like a rebel that's trying to escape. And that's also true. Our hearts are prone to wander. And so we pray that the Lord would bind our wandering hearts to him. Both are true. Then verses 24 through 27 kind of flesh out the rest of this anatomy, telling us we need to be careful about our outer lives. The nature of our heart, what's going on in here, shows up in our words, in where we focus our attention, and the path we walk on. Verse 24, it warns us about crooked speech which distorts reality and devious talk that departs from the truth. Our words reflect our hearts. But at the same time, over time, our patterns of speech act on our minds and our hearts. The way we talk about the world shapes the way we think about the world. And so even things like grumbling over time shape our hearts to be less thankful. Exaggerating the truth over and over leads us to be less focused on the truth. Verse 25 tells us, focus our eyes directly forward. Put your gaze straight ahead. If you want to plow or harvest a straight line, you don't look right in front of the tractor or the lines next to you. You pick a point at the other end of the field and you keep going towards that. That's what the Father is saying here is fix your eyes straight ahead. On what? Well, it's interesting. This chapter doesn't actually mention God explicitly anywhere. And yet I think that that's the only answer. What is the end of wisdom's way? God himself, knowing him in all our ways, walking with him. So Psalm 29, 8, David says, praise, my heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek. That's what it looks like to have your eyes fixed straight ahead at the end point, to seek to see 
God himself at the end of all things. We need to ponder our path. He says, watch out where we're putting our feet. Don't uh, swerve to the right or the left. The point that he's making here in this last section is that all of our life, all of our body, our eyes, our ears, our words, our heart, our feet need to be dedicated to serving the Lord and to walking wisdom's way. That's what it means to take wisdom to heart. This is expressed so well in the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my, my, my heart, it is thy own. It shall be thy royal throne. That's what the Father's urging to the Son here. Saying, let your heart be God's royal throne. Let's let that be our prayer and our song as we close our service this morning. Lord, we thank you for these wise fathers and sons generations ago, thousands of years ago, who have passed on godly wisdom to us, that we might sit at their feet as sons and daughters and learn from them. Let us be challenged by this father. Let us be challenged to get wisdom, to get wisdom above all else, and to pass it on to the next generation. Let us be a church that is intergenerational intentionally, the older generation catechizing the younger and helping. Lord, that teaching is not enough. Me preaching your word this morning is not enough. And so I ask by your spirit that you would stir us up to walk in the way of wisdom and to not even enter the path of the wicked. Let us walk faithfully before you. Let us have grit and tenacity to walk the way of faith to the end. And ultimately, Lord, to do these things, we need our hearts to be restored. And so we ask, Lord, that we would take wisdom to heart, that as you promised in Ezekiel, you would put your own spirit within us, and so renew our lives from the inside out. As you promised in Jeremiah, write your words on our heart, that we might delight in obeying you. As Jesus promised to Nicodemus, might we experience new birth and be renewed. Lord, be at work in our hearts even now as we sing this final hymn. Amen.